Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. I'm Jessica Kumar. In 2006, I first came to India for work and basically never looked back. My journey took me through learning Hindi, living in multiple parts of India, and kuch saalon ke baad mujhe apna jeevan saathi mila. The Invisible India podcast isn't just a place where I share about being married to an Indian, being a foreigner in India, the language learning process, and cross-cultural parenting. But it is a platform to highlight the lesser-known aspects of Indian culture by featuring stereotype-breaking Indians making waves in society. So, chaliye, headphone lagake suniye hamare saath. Namaste. Welcome, everyone, to the Invisible India podcast. Jessica here, signing in from the U.S. Here for several months. As many of you know, it was a very challenging season for. Pretty much everyone in India during the um, height of the COVID lockdowns, the second wave, and our family just needed a little bit of recovery time. So we are in the states. We're working remotely. Our kids are going to school in the states for a little while, and we're heading back to India pretty soon. Uh, our daughter's school in India is still closed, so we really needed for her to have a little bit of stability. And it's going quite well. I'm not sure my kids are really understand the full weight of what winter is really like in Chicagoland. I think they're fascinated with snow, but they don't realize actually how <laughs> depressing it can be to have months and months of gray skies with like no sun and just cold. So we'll be ready to go back to India once they realize that. This week, I am thrilled to bring half of the duo of the Yoga is Dead podcast, Jaisal Parik. If you have been following Desi Instagram or Indian origin podcasters, you have undoubtedly come across the Yoga is Dead folks. Jaisal and her counterpart, Dejal, are Indian American yoga teachers who have been navigating the complexities of practicing and teaching yoga in a Western context. On the Yoga is Dead podcast, they talk about colonialism, the after effects and the current effects of white privilege, American privilege, and how the original and ancient practices of yoga have been reduced to physical fitness and a popularity contest. This is a very this is a fantastic conversation Jessel and I were able to have about some of those challenges. Find them at on Instagram, the Yoga is Dead podcast, their website as well, yogaisdeadpodcast.com. They're also on Patreon. There are not a lot of episodes, but they're extremely informative and deep dives. I've been following them for a while. I've learned a lot from their work and I was thrilled to have Jessel on. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Jessel. Check back for part two next week. Before we dive in, though, I want to tell you about the Mix membership from the almost Indian wife, Brittany. If you're looking for a group of women to support you in an interracial relationship, the Mix membership is definitely a place you want to consider. This is a community of women who are in interracial, many of them cross-cultural relationships, and many of them are raising multiracial families, navigating issues with in-laws, raising multicultural kids. Brittany, who goes by the Instagram handle Almost Indian Wife, 
is so fun, but don't let that deceive you. They go into some very deep and complicated issues. If you've been on Instagram for more than five seconds, I'm sure you've seen her reels, which are hilarious and relatable. She is a wonderful mentor and brings many women to share their stories. I'm oftentimes a guest mentor on The Mix, talking specifically about raising bilingual kids, multiracial families. I bring some fun stories about living in India. So if you are interested, you can use the code MIXJESSICA, that's M-I-X-J-E-S-S-I-C-A, to get your first month free of hanging out with this wonderful group of ladies. It's also on my website, invisibleindiapodcast.com slash offers. I'm going to put the link to the Mix membership in the show notes if you think that would benefit you. All right, let's get to the conversation with Jessel. Hello and welcome, everybody, to the Invisible India podcast. Today, I am thrilled to have Jessel Parikh with me from the Yoga is Dead podcast. She is half of the duo of the Yoga is Dead podcast. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jessel. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jessica. I'm excited. For anyone that has not heard of the Yoga is Dead podcast, it's a very provocative show and you're very provocative about the way that your thought leadership comes through and the way you also practice leadership uh, with you and Dejil, your co-host. You guys are both practitioners as well as teachers and I just really appreciate you both and I am thrilled to have you guys or have thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jessica. Yeah, provocative is the word for sure. (laughs) I think that you can use to describe us. Yes, I'd love it. So just to get an idea of the show, for anyone that has not heard the show at this point, uh, these are some of the titles just to just to kind of give people an idea of what you're all about. White women killed yoga. Karma capitalism killed yoga. Gurus killed yoga. Vinyasa killed yoga. My personal favorite, vegans killed yoga. (laughs) 200 hours killed yoga. If you listen to those, you'll get the basics of what Jaisal and Dejal are really all about and what they're trying to communicate with the show. But it's really not basic at all what they're talking about. The the episodes are incredibly well-researched, deep dives that really, I think, are are revolutionizing the way that uh, our modern Western society has kind of uh, digested yoga and you guys are doing a fantastic job of, of kind of uh, reframing things. So if you've ever done an awesome, if you've ever been to a yoga class, if you've ever drank a chai tea latte, whatever that is from Starbucks, listen to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, we agree. I agree. (laughs) So, uh, Jessel, can you give us a little intro about yourself as an individual, how you um, started practicing yoga, where you live, and a little just about yourself? Sure. So, my name is Jessel Parikh. 
Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I'm living currently on unceded Lenny Lenape territory colonized in uh, the U.S. as northern New Jersey. Um, my background with yoga honestly started when I was very, very young. You know, it depends on your definition of yoga, to be honest, but if you're including like bhakti and all of those other elements, I would say like I was exposed to just in my household, parents were doing bhajans like every weekend with their friends. So that sort of stuff was kind of in the air that we breathed. And then I would say like the asana and pranayam and meditation aspect of it, I was introduced to uh, at a camp when I was young. So my parents sent me to like a Hindu camp and they had like a yogi guru come and teach all the kids in which was like a very interesting experience because trying to teach meditation like early morning to young children, it's like, what? I don't like as a kid, I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> but I did remember certain like breathing techniques like that he was trying to teach us like diaphragmatic breathing by putting one hand on the chest and one hand on the belly and we see that a lot today so i was exposed to all these things when i was young but i would say that i didn't really become well I, you know again i was interested in philosophy always like i remember reading siddhartha as a kid and so like all these i kind of considered myself like a yana yogi because sure. to me the philosophy is like super interesting mm -hmm. but i would say like when did i start practicing regularly aka going to studios and doing asanas and that was more um after college so i just like moved to new york city at the time and then you know i was looking for a way to improve my health uh both mental and physical a friend of mine took me to a yoga class and i really liked it I, there are aspects of it that bothered me even at the time hmm. but i found that the out the benefits outweighed whatever weird experiences i was having in 2010 to do a teacher training and the motivation was not to do a teacher training the motivation was I didn't want to be in my job anymore. I knew I was going to India because I have that privilege of like visiting mm -hmm. families. Somebody said, why don't you just go to India when you're, when we're in India, why don't you just go to this ashram and like do a deep dive? Cause I wanted to do a deep dive. They knew that. So they're like, mm -hmm. oh, you can just do this thing. And while you're there, I think a family friend who is affiliated with the school that I was going to was like, just do the teaching certificate. And I was like, but I don't want to teach. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, just get the certificate. You don't know what will happen. Just get the certificate. So I went and I did the like, the teacher training program, which was like a month stay at the ashram. It, uh, it was the Swami Vik Ananda mm. Anusamstana Samdana in uh, Bangalore. Mm. So Svyasa, it was the school. And um, so I stayed there for a month at their ashram and I did their teacher training program. So that's sort of how, you know, my trajectory started mm. <laughs> on the path of becoming a teacher. Mm. Yeah, so it was it was kind of incarnated in in your family from a young age, and then when you actually started going and and being um, you know personally training and whatnot, that's that's yeah. Uh, I like how you distinguish those two things because I think that uh, that that's an important thing that you talk about in your show is the the difference and uh, between what yoga has kind of become and I. Uh, I would love to hear you give kind of uh, a definition. And I know your whole show is basically about this is defining what's the difference between ideal or original ancient yoga that has been killed from what you're you suggesting in the show, what it's become now, this kind of globalized, I don't want to say bastardized, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. but th this totally different thing. I don't know. Can you, can you kind of, 
give a, a definition or some kind of demarcation between those two things? Yeah, I think so. Because actually, I think that when we seek to define yoga, we think of de- like the mm-hmm. word definition as narrowing. But actually, mm-hmm. what we want to do is broaden the scope of what mm-hmm. yoga is, right? Because in the West, it has actually become, and because of the West now globally, right? Like this coming, this neo-colonialism effect, mm-hmm. it has now become a very narrow thing. It has become... Mm-hmm it has become essentially physical fitness, more or less, mm. right? With maybe mm. a little bit of like new age spirituality thrown in, but essentially it's become physical mm-hmm. fitness. And what we're mm. saying is actually yoga is this much broader, bigger thing with many paths and many lineages. And it is a spiritual practice that has a lot of different facets to it. And so um, there's a lot of benefits to that that are being left on the table and that we as people who are practicing yoga don't actually get access to because of this narrowness mm. that it has become. It has it has molded in a sense to fit that, you know, we are all in a capitalist world now. It is molded to fit this new paradigm of capitalism. And because of that, needing to fit into something, all of these beautiful dimensions get, you know, thrown out or left mm. by the wayside or underutilized. And um, mm. yeah, We just seek to broaden it. What does it actually mean to be a yoga practitioner? Well, it can mean a lot of things, and it can mean not ever doing it single asana. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So why would you say that the show is called Yoga is Dead? Do you really think it's actually dead or (laughs) just being digested slowly by something else? Um, it's obviously a tongue in cheek name. So sure. I think some people take it a little bit too literally. And they say, you know, I've heard, this is one argument I've heard, yoga is more alive than ever, more people than ever are doing yoga, which is interesting, because hmm. in a sense, that's true, right? When no one's debating that more people than ever are doing yoga. However, the yoga that people are doing is more and more diluted, right? Mm-hmm. Like how many people really know much about the history and philosophy of the practice or the context from the countries of which this practice comes from, um, or really understand like that there are different schools of yoga, right? Or even different like beliefs within yoga. So I think if you were to ask like the average teacher, just as something simple as like dualism versus non-dualism, hmm. did you know that you could be a yogi and believe two very different things? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I think when we say yoga is dead, we're saying like all the nuance, all the context, all the history, all of the things that make yoga unique and special have been stripped away from Mm. the practice. And so what we seek to do is to explore why and how that's happened. Hmm. Some people I've also heard say that globalization is just the evolution of yoga. And uh, you guys talk a lot about the digestion and appropriation of yoga. And like you were saying, some people, oh, this is just the globalization of yoga. This is just how it's, it's reaching the masses. It's becoming something that everyone, that's accessible to everyone. You don't need to know Sanskrit. You don't need to know this, that, or the other thing. Uh, So what would you say would be the difference between appropriation and evolution? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about appropriation versus appreciation in a moment, but I think when you hear this idea that globalization is like the inevitable and it's like, maybe that is the case, but the, the method through which that has happened 
because of our history mm -hmm. is through colonization, right? Like if we lived in a global world where colonization never happened on a global scale, um, it would be a very different mm -hmm. situation than what we see today, which is that, you know, European countries have historically colonized country, other countries around the globe. And so now everybody seeks to meet the standard of what it means to be European or white, right? And by definition, Americans, we also like in white Americans also benefit from that because there is a history, there is a legacy, mm -hmm. there's a tie there. And so, and you know, neocolonialism is happening through the lens of the US now, um, colonizing in one way or another other countries and cultures and so when we see that everything is met to the standard of whiteness that's very different than like countries melding their cultures of their own accord and borrowing from each other in a way that they're mm -hmm. they're free from power dynamics which isn't the case like if i walked on the street wearing a corta i i see you wearing your lovely corta right and i'm like that's so, so comfortable <laughs> and beautiful and like, you know, you probably even understand like there's there's like levels yes. of like cloth. You know that cloth in India is something very special. Like, you know, the certain regions are known for their cloth, mm -hmm. that they're like handcrafted, like all of these things. You have a respect for that because of where you live, right? And if I were to wear a corta down, wearing, walking down the street, even if it was mm -hmm. like special, mm -hmm. like I come from Gujarat, so Bandani, right? It's like big in Gujarat. Yes. I would be told to go yes. back to my home country, even though I was born here. Right. Yes. And I would be experiencing racism. That's how it is. So that's not the same as uh, globalization where yeah. like everyone can wear that mm -hmm. and everyone yes. can be treated equally. Right. And so I just think mm -hmm. that like that's a statement that comes out of ignorance. And I can understand mm -hmm. like if you're not acquainted with history and how these power mm -hmm. dynamics have played out systemically over time. That, yes. that can be a misconception that can form. I think sometimes people use these kind of statements of globalization or even, you know, I don't want to get into all this, but like all lives matter is, well, yeah, that's the way it should be, right? We have these ideas of, well, yeah, anyone can wear whatever they want and it shouldn't matter. Well, sure, that's the way it should be, but it, it, that's an ideal you hold, but that's, and maybe that is real for you, but that's not real for everyone. Right. So that's your reality, but you have to realize there are other realities occurring. <laughs> right. I can't go to a job interview wearing at, in my Indian clothing. Sure. I cannot. Sure. If I did, I mean, I could technically, sure. right? Free country. I can do what I want. Right. But the likelihood of me getting that job is going to be a lot lower. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. And if a if a person who experiences white privilege does the same thing, your culture potentially, <laughs> right? You could pot potentially like maybe in a financial setting that wouldn't be seen as sure professional. But by the way, why shouldn't it be seen as professional? Women in India wear gortas to work, right? That's mm -hmm. just the norm. Okay, yes. one thing. But if you are experiencing white privilege in certain situations, you're going to be seen as cultured, like you said, or mm -hmm. um, exotic, or well traveled, or interesting, right? Right. Whereas I will be seen mostly as not assimilating. Sure, fresh not off the boat. Too, fresh off the boat, too mm -hmm. ethnic, mm -hmm. not wanting to compromise, not wanting to fit in, sure. right? So like there's a difference there in how people are treated based on their mm. use of um, cultural artifacts. Mm. Great points. Um, I'll, I'll share a little anecdote from my uh, life when it comes to this. And, and I'm, I want to, you know, like take this conversation further, not like you need my validation, but just anyone that's listening, going through all of the uh, episodes and kind of getting a foundation for 
what uh, Jessel and Tejal are talking about is, I think, a great first step. And then kind of applying it to your own life and th thinking through what steps could possibly be made. Um, and I want to share a little bit about some of the things that I've reflected on and learned from some of these ideas. I work in India in a nonprofit organization, and I have been in and out of India for the last 15 years. And I work in the NGO sector, which is rife with lots of white saviorism. It, it really takes a lot to take a step back and think through how people are perceiving me as a white foreigner, even though I'm married to uh, a person who's from here, I'm married to uh, my husband, Abhishek, from Bihar. So people perceive that, that you, I belong here in some way. There's still the sense of white privilege is constantly something I have to be aware of at every step of, of my, my day and my whole existence and how I exist here is kind of centered on that fact. For example, I, I got a call this week from someone who had taken my name off of a list. I had I had gone to some meeting, this was months ago before COVID hit and lockdown occurred and everything. I'd written my name on a list. I attended an entrepreneurship meeting. Somebody got my name from that list and my phone number and called me and was asking for a job. And this this has happened on a number of, of, of times. And it's, it's a, a fact of life that, you know, I don't have a job to give him. I wish I did. But just the fact that it's a reality that's kind of this internalized colonialism that people see dollar signs everywhere, but there's a, a white person in this. And they're not wrong, actually, <laughs> in this sense, where if you look at the means that I have versus the means of an average Bihari person here, it is different. And so, um, but but yet, one of the big learnings that I've kind of really had to work through is that throwing money at problems does not always solve them. And while that might be the easy way out and kind of trying to help people, uh, you can actually harm, uh, do a lot more harm because of, of just not realizing that people will then kind of think, oh, well, we're, you're from the West and we can kind of get what we need from you and you have a lot more than we do. So we want this. And, and, and just these, these, these thoughts that are, that are there, um, mm -hmm. it's challenging to kind of work through those as a foreigner. Well, it's it, it's interesting that you say that because when we visit India, it is very mm. obvious. Actually, yeah. I would say now in the last few years, it's less obvious because the mm. way we dress is actually like has con there's a confluence now, right? Like mm -hmm. with people like my cousins, the way they dress is much more similar. And sure. yes, it can maybe still tell us apart, but not as much as you used to. Mm -hmm. But when we used to come to India when we were young, they knew right away, like, mm -hmm. okay, you're you're, you're from America, mm -hmm. right? You're an NRI. And it was the same thing, like people on the street would see dollar signs. Sure. And it's a very interesting dynamic because yes, when we visit India, our spending power goes up there. If I look at my family members who live in India, they're very privileged and they can afford help, mm -hmm. you know, to various yeah. degrees, right? Mm -hmm. And for us in the US, like we can't actually afford that kind of help back home. So like, it's like a weird di dynamic where like when we come there, yes, we can buy clothes because maybe our dollar goes a little uh -huh. further in India. But when I come back home, I'm not shopping at all because yeah. those jeans are too expensive. Like, what do you mean? We're shopping at like sure. Walmart and Target and like, you know, those types of yeah. places. So it was, it's a very interesting um, mm -hmm. thing. But yes, when you, when we go to India, we're also, it's that like, that white privilege, I guess, in a sense, or that maybe it's more like the American privilege follows, 
right follows us and we are then seen mm -hmm. as like targets of like oh mm -hmm. you have all this money sure. you know let me target sure. you so i i wanted to kind of use that anecdote as a as a launching board for um, talking about internalized colonialism. And I want to be really careful uh, as I talk mm -hmm. about this, because obviously I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a part of that as being someone who's, I just had my, got my DNA test back a couple of weeks ago and I'm like 99% like European, which I figured, but um, it, it's just funny to me how, uh, you know, people comment here all the time. They mean it as a compliment. You know, oh, like, oh, you're so Indian and all this. And, and I, I understand some people take that to heart and think, oh, yeah, I'm I'm Indian now and I can go around calling myself and it, that I'm Desi. And it's like, yeah, there's a history, there's struggle, there's all these things that you cannot associate yourself with just because somebody is trying to compliment you that you have worked hard to accommodate to their culture. There's a difference. Right. <laughs> so, um, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I, uh, hear people say those things, I'm touched, but I'm also like, I understand it's just a compliment that they're trying to say that you're, they're just trying to say that you're black. You are doing good job of blending Basically. in right now. Right. But then, <laughs> right. um, it, and so I think that's kind of funny that I'm like, actually, I'm like almost a hundred percent white. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, in a sense, I, I want to be careful because you know, I have a lot of conversations with people being a white person in India and uh, being married to an Indian man. And so I get a lot of questions of, oh, why did you marry an Indian? And why did he marry you a foreigner? And there's these weird kind of comparisons that go on between white women and Indian women. One of the kind of things that, that people always bring up is there's a sense of internalized colonialism and uh, that there is this sense of even many Indians are believing that white people somehow are better or more intelligent or more, you know, sexy or, or something like that. And, and I just wonder in kind of the, the realm of yoga and in the realm, I know yoga spreads much, much further than just the asana and the, uh, the practice of actually physically moving your body. But in this sense, like, what do you think it's going to take to kind of break free <laughs> from this internalized colonialism that is so pervading Indian culture. Yeah. What you named, I just want to say the thing that what you named in your own experience is so layered, first of all, because it's layered in like it patriarchy is. within India, Indian culture, right? Like yeah. for you to be seen a certain way, yeah, it's internalized colonialism, but it's also internalized oppression of your own, which we see a lot. And so I'm hearing this and I'm like, yeah, maybe white women are seen as sexier because they're allowed to express themselves mm -hmm. and be more confident mm -hmm. in their expression. Women living in India, there's like always this uphill battle and hopefully you mm -hmm. have a supportive liberal family. But even if you have the best supportive liberal family who wants you to be confident and express yourself, there is the society around you that is constantly telling you mm -hmm. to be more modest and to not have as much confidence. Yeah. Shorts, you better wake up early and make the cha for your mother-in-law and like you're gonna live with their mm -hmm. in-laws like all of the all of the traditional mm -hmm. aspects and i'm not saying all of them are bad because they can work mm -hmm. well potentially but they also can potentially be very oppressive right depending on the the people <laughs> the actual people who are participating in the mm -hmm. system so i think mm -hmm. you know indian women just generally we, we face a lot of oppressive societal pressures mm -hmm. so i think that's one aspect of like 
that mm. internalized like difference of you know white women versus indian women like there's a greater expectation on indian women to be yes. sanskari like you said and whatever that version of sanskari is for that person um and so you're not necessarily held to that same standard right like if if you do something that is not sanskari they just chalk it up to you being white oh versus she didn't know or give her a free pass and if i do the smallest sanskari thing ever <laughs> yes. then oh give me a tea and she knows everything it's like i literally like didn't forget to wear a dupatta when i went out to the grocery store like <laughs> Right, that, like that's the standard. <laughs> that's the standard. So yeah. yeah, I think there is always this idea of like being harsher on your own, and I yes. think that's like a big element of like if we're going to equalize, we need to stop holding our own to higher standards. Then we help. Then we hold those people who actually have more power and more privilege. So I think, and I've experienced that in my own life, right? Like mm. what we came out with this controversial podcast, and. You know, I have to say, like, some people in the Desi community have been incredibly supportive. Mm. One of the first things that we saw, actually, in terms of feedback, though, was the Reddit thread, mm. which I've not, you know, since that first couple of weeks, I haven't revisited because it was very negative. Mm. It was like people, people in, I think it was mostly people in India, but also probably global NRIs, like, basically saying how horrible we were. And it's like, yeah, you hold this to a higher standard because there's so little representation mm of what it means to be Indian or Desi or South Asian in yoga, that we have to stand in for everybody, regardless of whether the experience resonates or not. And we're just speaking to our own mm -hmm. experience, hmm. right? So there is this like, there's so, so I think we need to, I think for Desi folks, like we need to just support each other, even if we disagree, because in that disagreeing is actually how we become individuals. We don't actually have to represent each other. We can just be people. So I think that's one big aspect of it. I think the other is to really start to delve deeper into what um, to history and politics and how history has mm. shaped politics. I think when we live in the now, we forget that like actually we got there was a pathway to get here. And that pathway and trajectory is still has mm -hmm. a momentum behind it. And so if we don't understand that, like, hey, this piece of colonization actually had this huge impact on what we are experiencing today. We can't just be like, oh, well, colonization's over. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's not over. It's morphed yes. and transformed, but it's not over. And it has become mm -hmm. internalized. We still hold yes. to these standards. So I think if we can understand like the impacts of all of those, and for, for me in the US, like cr critical race theory has become very important. Like understanding what white supremacy culture is has become extremely important framework to unravel like where do i mm -hmm. uphold these things yeah um and i think just learning from you know a diverse group that includes people from the the cultures that we are seeking to understand one of my favorite um publishers is or authors i should mm -hmm. say is Dev Dutt Patnaik, mm -hmm. in part because he mm -hmm. makes things accessible to mm -hmm. me in, in some things in english many of his work all his books mm -hmm. i believe are published in english but he's also done like television programs where yeah. there's subtitles or there's english um because you know they're sure. using philosophical words sure. that i would not understand yeah. in hindi and so like to i heard him give a t ted talk about like what are the like implicit mm -hmm. behaviors within different cult cultures and contexts of one, one of the things he was saying was, what is the common denominator essentially of cultures? Mm -hmm. And how can that, how does that drive business, uh, you know, 
business culture. He's talking about business culture and how you can like succeed in different contexts. But I took that and I was like, oh yeah, there are these like very implicit differences that we're not really understanding well today. And I think one of the things was talking about if you believe in one God versus many gods, and it's not about individual belief, right? Mm -hmm. Because in India, there are many people who follow Abrahamic faiths Mm -hmm. or who are even Hindu and are monotheistic, Mm -hmm. right? There are plenty of people who believe in one God, but the culture and the systems are driven by the fact that we live many lives, that there could be Mm -hmm. multiple gods, that there are multiple truths and pluralities, right? So that is just the underlying Mm -hmm. understanding of how everybody operates, whether or not that's the individual belief Mm -hmm. versus if you only live one life and you only have, there's a very, (laughs) one God who is a little bit, uh, what do they call it? Vengeful. (laughs) It's going to drive a very different set of behaviors. Yeah, definitely. Even if you don't actually personally believe in them, these have been systematized all around us in ways that we, and like one of the ways we see this and the global impact of this is like how we do years, right? We yes. measure everything to the birth of Christ. And when in reality, people who follow the Hindu calendar don't mm-hmm. actually yeah. know, you know, they use multiple calendars. Sure. They use the Christian calendar yep. and they use the lunar calendar. Yep. And there are different lunar calendars yes. even within different religions. So yeah. Which one's more yeah, accurate a this, and it's so regional right. as well how it plays out and how things are right and so i you know where you live truth there is no absolute truth yeah right like multiple there's a fuzziness Mm -hmm. around binaries right oh yeah that's very much celebrated then and it's all about you know um of course i'm not the expert to speak on this but just from what from what the the things which i feel and the things which are impressed on me um, by those around me is it's all about, you know, fulfilling your duties, fulfilling your family duties and your societal duties and how you fulfill your societal duties is by fitting into the, uh, duties of the family. And somehow if you're outside of that, if you're not married or if you're, if you're gay or if you're this or that, then, or if you're a foreigner, somehow there's these these things which there it upsets the systems, and uh, there are certain things you're supposed to fulfill within that. And so, yeah, it's it's been interesting to um, to to try and navigate uh, how can I, as a foreigner, uh, you know, make I said dharam nibhal, right? And uh, I've I've had some very indirect coaching uh, from people around me that's been really helpful thanks for listening to the first part of this two-part conversation also be sure to check out youtube where you can see jessel and i speaking with each other face to face online but face to face all right catch part two later